Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend and really um, everybody's friend in the church, um, Professor and Brother Anthony Sweat. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm so honored to be with you and so grateful to, to be on the podcast with all your listeners. We're going to talk about Brother Sweat's new book called Repicturing the Restoration. It's a book that's um, been seven years in the making. It's now out at Desert Book. But for those of you that aren't familiar with Brother Sweat, let me just introduce them to you with a quick bio that's on his book. It's um, Dr. Anthony Sweat is an associate professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. He is also a practicing artist, received his bachelor's degree in painting and drawing from the University of Utah before going on to earn his PhD in education from Utah State University. Anthony is the author of numerous best-selling books and is a regular speaker at Latter-day Saint events and conferences. He and his wife, Cindy, are the parents of seven children. You can follow Anthony on Instagram at Brother Anthony Sweat or see more of his work at anthonysweat.com. Um, and for listeners, my wife has joined us for this podcast. My wife, Sheila, has um, been the one that really introduced Brother Sweat to our family, to our children, have taken his class at BYU and his great work to teach the beautiful doctrine of the Restoration in a way that's helpful for members and now is bringing his artistic talents um, bearing that with his doctrinal insights in this beautiful book um, to help us understand the restoration. So with that introduction, um, we're really grateful to have you on the podcast. Brother Sweat and I said a prayer that this podcast would be helpful for you, our listeners, to have better tools to understand the restoration and even some of the more complicated parts that may cause some uncomfortable times for faithful Latter-day Saints as they try to navigate that. Um, is, is that okay for an introduction, Brother Sweat? I think that's a great introduction. All I'll do is let your listeners down now with that great introduction. <laughs> well, talk about the book. Just tell us how the book came to be and introduce the book to our listeners. Yeah, I, uh, as you mentioned in the bio, I'm, I'm a, a practicing artist. I always thought that my original career plans were to be a full-time artist and the Lord led me a different direction into religious education, for which I'm grateful. I feel like that was my life's work and ministry of where I was supposed to go. And But I've never let go of my love for painting, my practice of painting, uh, my desire to use art to both uh, inspire, and, and but also to educate. I, I was always drawn toward art that um, that that was used to help teach, because I'm a teacher at heart. Um, and so when I started my career here at BYU as a professor, I noticed that there were some gaps in the existing artwork, uh, particularly dealing with our church history and doctrine, that I thought would just open wonderful discussions um, on subjects. I, I, like, for example, I noticed there were no artwork uh, depicting important scenes, such as uh, women giving healing blessings of faith, which women did in our church for over 100 years. Um, not a single image that I could find on that. There was no artwork depicting ordaining faithful black men to the priesthood in the 1840s uh, prior to the 1850s restriction. Some people don't even know that that happened. Um, there, were, there was no, well, I should say there was some artwork of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon using the hat method, but most of it was pejorative. It was demeaning. 
Uh, I wanted to try to do an image that was uh, tried to show it uh, as using the hat method, but also still under the uh, inspiration and, and revelation. So that was actually the first painting that kicked off the project in 2013. And I started just to make a list of really important paintings in our history um, and related to our doctrine that had either never been approached, according to my understanding, or uh, maybe they hadn't been approached very often, or maybe they hadn't been approached quite consistent with the historical record. And uh, 25 paintings later, seven years later, is this book that talks about what the image is, uh, gives a history, a background of the image, um, talks about why I painted it the way I painted it, and then it gives uh, an uh, application of, of how this image might expand or inform or even sometimes challenge our faith or our preconceptions of the restoration and also an analysis. I'm really big that art art isn't meant to answer questions. Uh, sometimes the language of art is meant to help us ask questions. So at the end, I, I conclude every chapter with four or five kind of poignant questions that this history might, might help us better reflect on and think about and, and learn about. I'm just, uh, it's just a unique book and such a unique story. The first picture I became aware of is the one you referenced in 2013 with Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon, the way um, is the way we teach, but the way we've never depicted. Um, talk more about that painting, just because that seems like the first painting you did and how that's been received. It's, it's a part of our home and I see it a lot in church curriculum. Just share with our listeners more about that painting. Yeah, it, it started my, two of my colleagues here at BYU, uh, Mike McKay, Michael McKay and Garrett Dirkmont, wrote a really wonderful book called From Darkness Unto Light about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And they were bringing together, they both worked on the Joseph Smith Papers Project and were uh, volume editors. And they're just bringing the latest research uh, to the forefront, uh, things, frankly, that scholars and, and different people have known and talked about for decades and decades, there's nothing new for, for, for a lot of people in any of this. What's new is that the general church membership hadn't really seen any church curriculum, any church-sponsored, um, correlated uh, references to Joseph using the hat to translate the Book of Mormon. And I just mentioned to them, I said, you know, as, as great as your book will do, um, uh, you know, there's the old saying, a picture's worth a thousand words, and I think you need some imagery to accompany it. Um, so they, um, I, I, I did a number of illustrations for their book. And then this was, this painting was the feature image for that book. Um, and, uh, it was received, uh, very warmly in some circles and very coldly in other circles. I literally had somebody write me and ask me why I was painting anti-Mormon propaganda. Um, I had other people write me and say, thank you for, uh, uh, trying to give an image of this uh, to depict it uh, faithfully. So uh, over time, I think it's been uh, well-received, better well-received. And a lot of that is because the institutional church has done uh, a great job of, of trying to contextualize and give resources on uh, when Joseph Smith might've used the hat uh, to translate. So that's helped. I, I sometimes use the phrase with my students, we, we associate what is faithful with what is familiar. And um, 
that that's a trap we have to be careful of uh, because there are things that are faithful that are unfamiliar. Um, but as it's become more familiar, I think people see it more faithfully as a whole. What a great principle, um, Brother Sweat, to navigate that. I love that. Um, and I, my wife is here. I, she's welcome to jump in and share any thoughts. She um, has spent more time in your book. She was in it all day yesterday, <laughs> pointing <laughs> things out. She when you know she ran, you know she got a copy, and we've got another copy you sent us. I was reading through the prologue though um, about a section called painting difficult history, and I think you kind of just touched on that. Um, but I think it's this, you know, some of the things that are more difficult. Um, I love that. I love what you just said. Do you want to share any more about this section, just painting difficult history? Yeah, thank you, Richard. You know, the book has highlights of the restoration. There's paintings in there of the first vision, maybe seen a different way. There's highlights. There's triumphant scenes like the first baptism for the dead or, um, uh, you know, angels dispensing uh uh, priesthood keys to Joseph Smith, and maybe we can talk about that later. But there's also challenging history in here, uh, or difficult history, as I termed it. And one of the reasons why is um, President Kimball gave a landmark talk called The Gospel Vision of the Arts. And in that talk, he said, um, we need uh, to, not, to show these, these triumphant scenes, these, these marvelous scenes of the Restoration. But he also said, Let's also depict the apostasies, the, the counter-revolutions, um, the, and the difficult parts of our history. And that largely um, has been overlooked. Um, but I think we're at a good time in church history where, uh, both speaking for the church collectively and uh, where we're at as members, where we're more open than ever to acknowledging the highlights and the shadows of the restoration, the triumphs and the failures. And so I, I want this book to, and the reason why, Richard, I, just up front, the reason why I think that's so important is because if we have a narrative in our mind that the history of the church of God's dealings with his children is only home runs every time and no strikeouts, then that's not reality. Um, or that it's, it's, uh, it's always um, success with no failure. The problem with that is uh, uh, if, if we think that God has worked that way with our church, number one, it just doesn't hold up. And therefore, some people will then kind of build a scarecrow argument, argument to say, well, then, if that was a mistake or a failure, then the church must not be true. I think that's a dangerous premise to operate on and an, and an unfounded premise. But I also think it, we can consciously or subconsciously translate that into our own lives. We can say, if I'm making mistakes, if I'm failing, if there's things that uh, times when, when I misstep, that somehow God isn't working with me. Uh, but he is. Uh, he works with us in all of our strengths and all of our weaknesses, all of our successes and all of our failures. So that, that's, that's one big part of the book is I, I want to show scenes that show both sides of history. So just there's, there's a great scene of Joseph sealing Benjamin and Melissa Johnson in an eternal marriage. And there is a next page, a very difficult scene of Joseph and Emma arguing over the revelation on plural marriage. Um, 
So kind of just two back-to-back images to highlight what I'm trying to talk about. I love that. And I love the framing of the restoration. To me, uh, Brother Sweat, that's more sustainable. It's more sustainable for me. It's more sustainable for our members. I recognize that's what the church um, is trying to do with the gospel topic ex- essays. And and I also recognize 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, the general membership of the church didn't know these more complicated and so I think that's a more sustainable framework. We know for our own children that have been in your class and have had professors in the foundations of the restoration, I think that class title is called has just built their faith in the church yeah. and in the restoration. Um, just I'll, I kind of, as the podcast host, love to just let my guests kind of go with what's passionate to them. So tell us <laughs> what you'd like to talk about next. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, there's, there's so much, I, I think it'd be good just to maybe share some of the stories good. to illustrate some of these concepts. So, um, you know, for example, one of the key concepts that um, I think would be important for all of us and your listeners to understand is that the restoration develops and is developing line upon line, uh, precept upon precept here a little and there a little. I think sometimes we have this idea in our mind that um, everything was delivered to Joseph like in a hundred point plan. And I just don't believe that's true. Not of my reading of history anyway. It seems that God would deliver one point to Joseph. And as Joseph would act on that point, then God would give him more and he'd give him more and he'd give him more. And a great scene, I, I referenced one of the scenes in there, I call it the first baptism for the dead. I really like that painting, not just because it's a pretty painting, which I think it is. It's this really cool scene down on the river. The sun is setting. It's this low rim light that's uh, highlighting the figures. But there's a woman being baptized in the river, and another woman is in the river sitting on horseback witnessing the baptism. Uh, This woman who's being baptized, her name is Jane Nyman. And Jane Nyman had a son who had died. His, His name was Cyrus. And Cyrus had never been baptized. And when Joseph preached this, his sermon at a funeral um, for Seymour Brunson, sorry if this is complicated history, but Joseph preaching a sermon at a man named Seymour Brunson at, at his funeral, Joseph decides to publicly for the first time talk about baptisms for the dead. And Jane is in the audience. And Joseph makes a reference that Jane can also have glad tidings for her son. Well, Jane. Um, Nyman grabs her friend, Jane's a widow. She grabs her friend, uh, uh, a man named Harvey um, Olmstead, and they go down to the river. And Jane is baptized for her son Cyrus in the river. And a woman named Vienna Jakes decides to ride into the river on horseback and witness it. Now, here's why this story's cool. And, and A, it's just cool enough, but it, it's great in that it illustrates. So here we have a woman being baptized for a man, a male being baptized for a female. It's in a river, not in a temple. Uh, The witness is a woman on horseback. And the great part too is that Harvey Olmsted made up the prayer on the spot. There was no patterned prayer. And when Joseph later hears that night that this baptism had taken place, he asks how it took place. And then all he says is, Father Olmsted had it right. And and it counts. and so I, as I say in the book, you know, to me, it's, it's evidence that, number one, God accepts our sincere efforts, even if they're not done perfectly. 
but secondly, he also lets things develop bit by bit. Uh, it will take years and years and years for the church to start to set standards like men should be baptized for men. Um, Joseph will say, you know, we can do these in the river for now, but they do belong in the temple. Um, Brigham Young, uh, in 1841, by the way, someone will say, well, shouldn't we also be doing confirmations for the dead uh, about a year later? And they're like, oh, yeah, we should. Um, and, and so some of this develops line upon line. That's another great message. But another, just one more cool part of it is a number of years ago, I was sitting in the, in the Holy Temple and we were doing some work for the dead. And um, uh, it happened, my wife and I were doing ceilings in the temple. And it just so happened that the other people in the group were only female. Uh, and one of the temple workers who was acting as one of the witnesses got called out. And so we were left with me, the sealer, and one other male. We couldn't move forward doing any ordinances because we didn't have another male to act as witness. And my wife turned to me and said, why, why is it that only men can witness a temple ordinance? And I said to her, I don't know. Um, I, and I said, I, I'm not certain that it's tied to any priest at office. Uh, and then I said to her, you realize the very first work for the dead that ever happened was witnessed by a woman. And so I said, I'd imagine that women can act as witnesses. And then just a short time later, the church came out and announced their change in that policy. So there's also a benefit to learning history like that so that we can also better understand changes and directives and um, uh, in church practice and teachings and policies. So anyway, that's just one story that illustrates many examples of kind of what I hope this book does or, or things like that. And that for our listeners is on, starts on about page 151. Um, beautiful painting. That's one of the ones my wife and I sat down yesterday and she pointed out to me and how much it meant to her. I didn't actually realize that um, she was being baptized for her son. Actually, I yeah. realized that, but I didn't. It didn't connect me until my wife pointed out. Do you realize that's not how it works now? Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. just sort of, you know. But then I love for our listeners, um, brother Sweats. Um, they're not long. These aren't long chapters in this book. This is an easy read in some ways. It's visual, like you say, but you go through an application and an analysis, and it's sort of principle based. Um, teaching about how to, about these beautiful events of the restoration that apply to us today in our own lives and in the church. And so that's one of the beauties of this book um, for our listeners, and I encourage them to to um, get, get and share with others. Do you have any thoughts on this, Sheila? Because I know you had, this was pretty meaningful to you. Well, I here I am on a podcast. Anthony, I said I'd never do a podcast in my life. I'm so you grateful you're here. on here, Sheila. Um, no, but I actually shared this story of Jane Nyman in my Relief Society lesson just after the conference where they changed the um, young women's uh, theme because awesome. it talks about standing as a witness. And so because this was on the forefront of people's minds, this witness change, um, my friend Jane had told me this story and I looked it up and I got all the de got, or got details and but it was it was empowering in a way, and it, there's something beautiful about knowing it's done before when there's a change. There there is something good about the familiar, mm -hmm. um, but it also just it just brought the sweetest peace. I think everyone was excited. I don't think this was a change anybody wasn't excited about. 
Yeah, but it I was, agree. But it's lovely to have, have this history and to know that God, through Joseph, said it matters. This one counts. I think that's a beautiful message. So thank you. Yeah, for, thank thank you. you for painting that. And it oh, is beautiful. It is beautiful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, thank you, Sheila, for saying that. And I hope that when people see the image, that they can not only visually enjoy it, but that doctrinally it does bring some messages like that to mind. Other things you'd like to share with us, Brother Sweat? Yeah, um, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, we've we've kind of, well, uh, one scene that I would share that I think is important. We talked a little bit about how we need to get this idea out of our mind that uh, church leaders are perfect, which obviously I think that's a message that's been well grasped now, that they can be empowered, key-holding, authorized servants of God. And still be human. Um, and Joseph Smith from the very beginning seems to be trying to, to get that message across um, to the church. Uh, and for whatever reason, you know, uh, there's, there's lots of different reasons why our history has gone this way. But there was a time in our church where there was a feeling that we shouldn't tell any negative stories. We shouldn't tell anything that might not reflect people that we hold in admiration that if there's any stories that reflect them in a negative light, that we should withhold those stories, that we shouldn't talk about them or teach about them in church settings. And, and uh, I think time has shown that that, that sometimes was, was harmful. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, when, when I was a kid, if I could just share a personal story, like, like many kids, like I held my dad in so high of regard. And my dad uh, was a police officer. He was a detective. He was on the SWAT team. Um, you know, he was cool. on the, he was cool. He, he, he was a motor cop for a while. He rode a Harley Davidson to work and carried three guns, you know, and, uh, as a little boy, you're just like, oh man, my dad is basically a superhero. Um, and I remember one time I was swimming with my dad in the pool and hanging on his back and I was monkeying around with him. I don't know. I was maybe eight or nine. And, and I grabbed him, I grabbed his arm really hard and and uh, I remember my dad pulled back and said, ouch, that hurts. Don't, don't do that. And I literally, as a boy, remember thinking, oh, my heck, my dad is human. Like, my dad feels pain. <laughs> and, and I know that's silly. But in a way, we have almost made people like Joseph Smith and Emma Smith, we've almost made them untouchable and unrelatable when when our only knowledge of them is triumphant always, because then we think that they didn't feel pain or didn't ever misstep. And so maybe two paintings that, that I would share in there. One of them is um, uh, a fight that Joseph Smith has with his brother, William. Now, when I say fight, I don't mean argument. I mean, literal fist fight. Um, Joseph and William, Joseph's the president of the church. And William is one of the members of the, Forum of the Twelve Apostles, to put that in perspective. Um, and Will, they're holding a debate club in where William lives. William's home, William lives with Joseph Smith Sr. as well. And the debate club gets, Joseph Smith Jr. is there, the prophet, and he doesn't like the feelings that are being kind of brought up in this debate club. He doesn't feel like they're consistent with priesthood and Christian principles. So Joseph basically says, let's quit holding the debate. And William, who had called the debate, doesn't like that and gets upset at Joseph. And they 
cross words back and forth with each other. Joseph kind of pulls rank and and William William argues back and Joseph is about ready to leave. And Joseph will later say in his journal, I was about to leave. And then Joseph says, but as I reflected on it, I helped build this home and that you're living in. And it's my father's house. And I have the right to speak in my father's house. So Joseph let him have it. And, and he probably should have walked away. But William gets so enraged that uh, from all under, my understanding of the accounts, William attacks Joseph. Joseph sees that William's coming after him and tries to take his coat off to fight him. But William gets to him before he can, and William just beats, beats up his brother badly. So badly that Joseph, for the next day, Joseph was in home, uh, at home in bed all day and couldn't get up without help, he says. And um, for the next number of weeks, it's very tense between Joseph and William. Some letters. William writes Joseph a sorrowful letter. Joseph writes a letter back to William, um, apologizing, but not really apologizing, still kind of saying it was your fault. William uh, is still holding on to some bitter feelings towards him. And to get to the point of it, a few weeks later, it takes kind of a family intervention where Joseph Smith Sr., Martin Harris, John Smith, they kind of bring Joseph and William together. They, They air their grievances. They freely forgive each other. They both confess their faults. They, um, Joseph writes a beautiful line. He says, the spirit of confession and forgiveness was present. And then he says, and like our tears flowed fast. And it's just, a, to me, now, it's not really a positive thing to talk about a, the prophet getting into a fistfight with an apostle and pulling rank. And, but at the same time, you know, it, it, it shows what Christianity is all about. Um, there's, there's pride and there's power and there's family dynamics and there's hard feelings, which we all experience. Maybe this is especially apt as we approach Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, but there's also forgiveness and confession and love and, um, and, a, and a willingness to, to let the past go in the past. Uh, and I walk away from things like that and I relate better to Joseph and I love him even more. Um, so that's just one story, for example. Um, maybe another one would be the, the revelation on plural marriage. So one of the paintings I have in there, that's one of my favorite paintings too, it shows Joseph sitting in front of a fireplace, low lit, dark light, the only lights being cast from the fireplace. And Joseph sitting there, his eyes are kind of averted. He's holding a revelation, which is the revelation on eternal and plural marriage found in section 132. And Emma is standing up, her arms folded, looking defiant, but also hurt. Um, And uh, in in that chapter, I I titled that painting Purgatory. Um, And the reason why I titled it that is because when Joseph brings home the revelation on plural marriage, now Emma has known about plural marriage for a while, but this is the first time the revelation has been written down. And part of the reason why the revelation was written down was to try to convince Emma that it was of God. And Emma, by all accounts and reading of history, is having none of it. Um, And for the next three days, if you read Joseph's journal entries, it says his next day, at home all day, the day after that, 
at home all day in conversation with Emma. Now, you know, Richard, you're married. I'm married. You don't have to be married for, for five seconds to interpret what's going on here. Um, True. Uh, it could mean I interpret that as at home arguing or at home disagreeing all day long. And Joseph is a busy man at this time. Very rarely, if ever, do his journal entries say at home all day. Um, and on the third day, after he brings home the revelation on plural marriage, there's a cryptic entry written by Joseph Scribe that says, last three days, and it's written in shorthand, last three days have been purgatory or hell, is, is how it's written. It's written by Joseph uh, Scribe. Willard Richards writes it. And so I, I, I titled the painting Purgatory or Hell. And I wanted to include that to show that um, sometimes, you know, revelation is a blessing, but also sometimes revelation is difficult. And, um, and it produces difficulties in people's lives. And um, sometimes we're stuck with, with what do we do and how do we approach this and how do we handle this? Um, and I don't pretend to have all the answers on that, um, but but I but I do I, I I painted a little in the painting on the beam that's behind. There's a big beam behind them. Now this is where it's not historically accurate. Um, uh, I made the fireplace. The whole fireplace is real rocky to kind of sim- symbolize the rocky nature of what's happening. But if you look really closely on the beam, I carved into the beam a little cross. Um, Because many times Joseph, Emma, others who had to implement and practice the revelation on plural marriage, they likened it to an Abrahamic sacrifice or test um, or a cross, a beam that that they were asked to bear. Um, And they bared it faithfully and well, but not without a lot of difficulty. So, uh, probably a subject that can be well related to by many of your uh, many of your listeners as well. Those are two great ones. Um, I think the first one with Joseph and the fight is on page one hundred eight, roughly, and Emma and Purgatory is one eighty nine. Those are also two that my wife and I went over yesterday. I love the cross um, and the symbolism of the cross that's in that painting. I'm yeah. glad you included that. And we're I both- did. And I, I also included in there in the rocks, uh, the, in between the rocks, between Joseph and Emma, I included the Pittman shorthand symbol for purgatory or hell between, between them as well. I love that you included that because life can get really complicated, as, you, as we all know. And I think we need these sort of stories and that give us foundational principles of how to navigate complicated things that come into our life. Yeah. Um, as faithful Latter-day Saints, others you'd like to share with our listeners. Um, one of my favorite paintings in there is called divers angels. Um, it shows six different angels, uh, diving down. I, I literally painted them diving. I know it means diverse and I did paint them diverse by the way, too, of different nationalities and ethnicities. Um, but also I painted them divers, kind of a plan word diving down, kind of symbolic of all this power and authority that was given to he- from heaven 
one of the things I like to say to my students is that when we say the church is true, what are we getting at that? Um, you know, this is the true church. Well, it, it doesn't, it does not mean that the church is organized perfectly. Because in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, when the Lord calls it the true church, uh, we didn't have the organization that we have today. And we didn't have the 12 apostles. We didn't have patriarchs. We didn't have 70s. We didn't have state presidents or high councilmen. Or... So the, it's not the organization that makes the church true. Um, I say to my students sometimes, well, then what is it that makes the church true then? Um, it can't be that we have all knowledge because there are many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God that have yet to be revealed. That's one of our own articles of faith. It can't be that the church has never misstepped or made mistakes because there have been times in the past when, when that is, has happened. So I, I, I like to press my students, like, what, what does it mean then that the church is true? And for me personally, the best answer that I have come to is that the church is authorized to dispense the ordinances of salvation and exaltation. The church is authorized by God through angelic messengers who have dispensed this power to do these things in the church. Uh, that helps me a lot uh, in my own personal discipleship uh, and my own deep personal belief in the truthfulness of the church. I believe very deeply that we're led by living prophets who are invested and hold priesthood power and keys. But one of the reasons why, with that setup, one of the reasons why I love this image too is because in section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph starts to go on this triumphant kind of like, what do we hear in the voice of the restoration, a voice of gladness, a voice of, and it's this triumphant letter. And he starts to list angels who have ministered to him. He lists Moroni, he lists John the Baptist, he lists Peter, James, and John. Um, he lists the chamber of Father Whitmer, which maybe I could talk about that painting too, the voice of God in the chamber of Father Whitmer. But then kind of fun, he says, and the voice of Michael, who we interpret that to be Adam. And then he says, and the voice of Gabriel, who Joseph at one time teaches that Gabriel is Noah, and the voice of Raphael. And then he says, all dispensing. And then he says, and divers angels, which is where I get the phrase from. All dispensing their keys, their powers, their dispensations, line upon line, precept upon precept. Um such a cool idea. And I, I sometimes pause with my students or others and I say, okay, so you know what keys John the Baptist dispensed and you know what keys Peter, James, and John dispensed, but what keys did Adam dispense? What keys did Gabriel dispense? What keys did Raphael dispense? Who is Raphael other than a ninja turtle or an artist? Um, exactly. And I, I I even joke and I say I'll I'll give you I'll give you a thousand dollars if you can tell me who Raphael is. I've never ever heard that officially taught by the church who the angel Raphael is, and what priesthood key or power he dispensed to the prophet Joseph Smith. So this painting is also meant to symbolize that there are powers in the church that maybe are sitting latent, 
that there's authority in the church that maybe we haven't yet tapped into, that there's um, maybe things in the church that are privately understood but not publicly understood. Um, and so every angel is kind of holding a symbolic item uh, in that painting that symbolizes some things that we do in the church that uh, aren't exactly clear where it originated from or, or who dispensed that. So that's what that painting is all about and, and, uh, and symbolizes. And, that, and I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to interpret all the symbols for you. I love that. That painting is on page 167, listeners. And talk about Father Whitmore. Yeah, so a few priesthood-related ones. Um, uh, one of the, in section 128, as I mentioned, Joseph Smith, when he's listing these kind of things that restored authority to the church, he lists the chamber of Father Whitmer. The voice of God in the chamber of Father Whitmer is how he says it. And uh, most of us just kind of blow past that and go, I have no idea what that is. But it's sandwiched right in between. It goes, it's right after he lists Peter, James, and John. And then he lists the voice of God in the chamber of Father Whitmer. And there's debate uh, amongst scholars about what really happened in the chamber of Father Whitmer. Chamber is a fancy way for saying the home or the bedroom, the bedroom of Peter Whitmer Sr., where Joseph Smith was finishing his translation of the, of the Book of Mormon at the time. And, but Joseph himself writes in his history that what happened was, well, let me back up. I had, a, I had somebody ask me one time, it was actually a missionary who wrote to me, and he said, my companions and I are having a debate. Um, we don't know when Joseph Smith received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, he said, we know that after, Joseph tells us that after John the Baptist restored the keys of the Aaronic priesthood, they went and baptized each other in the river. But after Peter, James, and John came, when did Joseph and Oliver give each other the Holy Ghost? Can you help us on that? And I sent them this portion out of Joseph's history, where Joseph says, after Peter, James, and John came, so most scholars put Peter, James, and John coming at the end of May, 1829. After that, in June is when Joseph goes up to Fayette, New York, to finish the translation of the Book of Mormon in the Whitmer home. And he and Oliver decide to pray to God to ask when they can receive the Holy Ghost. That's their question. And they pray to God, and all Joseph says is they had made this a subject of prayer, and the word of the Lord came to them in the chamber, authorizing Joseph to make Oliver an elder in the church and Joseph to make or Oliver to make Joseph an elder and to confer the Holy Ghost. That's what they're praying over. But the Lord says they needed to wait to do this ordination and conferral until the church could be organized and the members could sustain that action. And so the 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 Joseph sees it as a significant development tying the giving of the gift of the Holy Ghost to the voice of God in the chamber of Father Whitmer. Now, that's not a typical priesthood narrative that we give. Um, but Joseph seems to put it that way in his history. And listening right now, if any scholars are listening, there's debate on it. Um, some people say that maybe God gave them authority to do that in the chamber. Other people say, no, all the keys were given by Peter, James, and John. And what the Lord did was he authorized Joseph and Oliver in the chamber 
to exercise those keys. Depends on how you want to look at it. But the point is we can't overlook it as a significant event. It's in our history. It's in our scriptures. And I wanted to give an image trying to, to show it and launch into a discussion on it. I love that. And it's a beautiful image. It's on roughly page 61. Listeners, yeah. we have the benefit. This is not a visual podcast. This is one time I wish we were visual, <laughs> but with that, we hope people just go um, get the book so you can see the things we're talking about. Um, more you'd like to share, Brother Sweat? Um, well, any, any that you want to ask in particular, Richard or Sheila? Anything, Sheila? Like, which, which ones are... Which ones are calling out to you that you'd want me to touch on for a minute? Well, and maybe this will lead you to a painting, but um, I was a hostess in the conference center, which then became the visitor center. And we got a blanket release last week, all whatever, 3,000 of us. But, um, but, you know, there's beautiful art there. It's the best collection in the Valley by far, um, both just um, historically and, and I think financially as well. But um, I loved that I got to show people art. And so when I went to the symposium and and you spoke, it was so great because you showed the painting of um, the Stripling Warriors, Helaman and Stripling Warriors. And you said, well, of course they won. Look at them. I mean, they're buff. (laughs) They're, 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 these are men. These aren't, you know, these aren't young boys. And you kind of gave us this wonder. I mean, Arnold Freeberg's painting is gorgeous. And in person, all 12 of his from that series are there. And, but then down the hallway, there's another one of, um, also let me go back. So there's also the painting of a Benedi and the only painting I've ever known of a Benedi. And then down the hallway, there's a picture by Walter Rain, a painting um, Mm -hmm. of a Benedi. And a Benedi is very young. He's younger. He's young. And, um, looks to me the ages of our sons at the time when I was doing that and still they're still about that age and I looked at it and thought I really hadn't ever thought about that so I had to go home and reread and make sure I there isn't an age in the scriptures and um King Noah looks very different the whole scene is just different and neither one is wrong and neither one's right it's just what we're familiar with back to your familiar word yeah. But it helped me to understand that, I mean, for me, art, if something speaks to my heart, it's it's right and it's true. And I don't mean true. I mean, it is. It's right and true, meaning it causes me to reflect on the things that matter. So where the history wasn't behind either one of those paintings, as far as those details, if it gets me thinking about that story, then that's a wonderful thing. And diving into... Yeah what that looks like. If he was older, what was he sacrificing? If he was younger, did he have a family? I mean, those kind of things are the things I really thought about and make me appreciate him even more. So anyway. Yeah, true in that it sets you on the right path. Exactly. Yeah. True in its aim. Yeah. So how do you, so yours are mostly historically based. I mean, you, yeah. you said something, you mentioned something that wasn't, his, you know, accurate. Oh, the mantle and the rock. And but I, but how do you, how do you find, I mean, do you just see art mostly as an interpretation for people or? Um, yeah, that's a great question, <laughs> Sheila. It has to be an interpretation. I want, for, for any listeners, um, art, art is always a translation. You're looking at the translation by the artist. But, um, and that, that's such a good question because there are some people 
there, there are, there are kind of two ends of the spectrum. There's the artist who says, I just want to freely create and express as I want. And then there's others on the other end who say, no, art needs to be perfectly historically accurate. Um, and I'm trying to bridge somewhere in between the two. Um, kind of the line that I'm drawing is I want them to be historically uh, informed and accurate to the essence, but you can never be perfectly accurate to the details. And, and without being too bold, anybody who wants art to be 100% historically accurate all the time has likely never picked up a paintbrush themselves because you recognize that the moment you do, you have to make decisions. You have to make interpretations. Even right now, if I took the most off-painted scene in the history of the church and said, I want you to paint the first vision of Joseph Smith, you're going to go, oh, okay, we have nine wonderful sources on that. We have lots of source material. The moment, okay, so you're going to set the scene. You know, is he kneeling? How do you know he kneeled? Did he kneel one knee, two knees? What pants is he wearing? What shirt is he wearing? How does his hair look that day? And you're like, oh, those scenes don't matter. Well. See, you're going to have to make a decision there. Well, now you're going to have to depict the father and the son. What do the father and the son look like? How do you know that? How big are they? How small are they? Where do they stand? How did they pose? What was their clothing? All of those are interpretations. Uh, Joseph says he saw many angels in the grove. How many angels? What do those angels look like? Uh, you just automatically have to make decisions. Uh, Arnold Freeberg one time said, there's no tube of paint that says, I don't know. <laughs> and and uh, in art, that's one of the difficulties. So I think sometimes we could, uh, so to the point, I try to bridge it in the middle. I'm trying to have it be historically informed based off the sources uh, to the essence of the story. But to the details, I feel at liberty to, um, to help get the message across uh, and to make some interpretive decisions. And we would do a lot, we would help, uh, we would ease a lot of tension in the church, I think, with art. If, if at the start of every church curriculum, it could just say, any art or visuals, you know, any artistic imagery used herein is meant to express concepts or ideas. Art is meant to invoke, inspire, and express. It is not meant to be interpreted as literal doctrine or history. That could help a lot. Then we could be a little more comfortable with angels, with wings, and, and halos, and and other symbols like that. So love that. Thank you. Talk about the ordination of Q Walker Lewis, this painting on page 192. And it's just this idea that the church did um, ordain black people and we stopped ordaining black people. And we've, we're ordaining black people obviously today. And that, as you know, and our listeners know, can be unsettling for faithful Latter-day Saints. And so through your artwork or through your own teachings, kind of just teach how to navigate that. That's a great question, Richard. And it is one of the most, um, one of the most sensitive ones in the history of our church as well. But it's needed to talk about, particularly at this time in our, in, in American society and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to use Q Walker Lewis because one of the other men who is better known than Q Walker Lewis is a man named Elijah Abel. And Elijah Abel was ordained an elder. He was also ordained a 70, which at that time was more of a missionary. Um, but I wanted 
there's a photograph of Elijah Abel that's really well known, but there's no imagery of Q. Walker Lewis. So I decided to do a painting. Q. Walker Lewis, I don't know what he looks like. There's no photographs of him. Uh, I did some research on him that I could find. His family line comes through Ghana. Um, and uh, I decided to do a painting where it shows Q. Walker Lewis sitting, being ordained. But the composition of it, back to what art is trying to do, the composition of it cuts off at the shoulders of the man ordaining him. You can't see his head. Because I didn't want it to be about who ordained him. I want it to be about Q. Walker Lewis. Um, and Q. Walker Lewis, I also don't have his eyes closed, which we typically do today in an ordination. I have his eyes looking directly at the viewer, almost like, um, hey, you need to acknowledge this man who represents uh, Black Latter-day Saints. Wow, that's cool. So, so yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm trying to get that to happen. But then also I try to teach a little bit of the history. Q. Walker Lewis was a free Black man. He was an abolitionist. He was a Freemason. He was an educated man, a powerful, thinking, great, influential man who joins the church. And um, he faithfully comes west as well uh, and makes it to Utah. Now, the sources are very scant on him. When he makes it to Utah, he receives his patriarchal blessing also. Um, but for unknown reasons, he the next spring, he leaves uh, the, the Utah Valley. It just so happens to be that's the same winter when the uh, he arrives in the fall and in the winter, the race-based restriction uh, on black men and women with priesthood and temple ordinances is put into effect. And so it's conjecture, it's assumptive, but it seems like um, that is what causes him to choose to distance himself from the church. He goes back east, goes back to Massachusetts, and dies just a few short years later. Um, and I kind of talk about how, um, you know, it, it this this feeling of of maybe not getting the warm welcome that he expected. Because one of the things that was now I'm, I'm not sugarcoating the past at all. We we had have and still had our issues with racism. But originally, our church was a little more progressive with race. We openly baptized black people. We got into trouble in Missouri in 1833. One of the reasons why we get driven out of Independence, Missouri, is because W.W. Phelps writes an article saying, inviting free people of color to gather to Zion. And that, and Missouri was a slave state at the time, and the locals in Independence were having none of that. So kind of our progressive attitudes on race that got us into trouble. Even when Q. Walker Lewis is ordained, there's questions about it. And Brigham Young himself says that we have no rule as to people of color when it comes to priesthood. That's from Brigham himself. And that's important um, but, uh, to know. But by the time we get out to Utah and get settled out here, some things have changed. And... Um, including a legalization of slavery in the Utah Territory, um, some unfortunate uh, um, interpretations, and also behaviors by a man named William McCary, a mixed-race man. And we don't know all the reasons behind it, but by the time 1852 comes around, they, the church begins to restrict Black Africans from priesthood and temple. And so to the point of it, 
I kind of talk about how in the book where this progressive nature was peeled back and it, and it makes me wonder if Q Walker Lewis just didn't get the reception, didn't get the welcome, didn't get the, uh, um, the open arms invitation that he seems to have had in Massachusetts, which causes him to leave. Now, again, I want to say that's conjecture. That's just reading into the story. Um, there's nothing to know that definitively, but I do think it's important to ask ourselves today, uh, what, are, what are we doing institutionally uh, or personally that is causing people to feel marginalized, not, not helping people to feel equal, uh, loved, embraced, accepted uh, as part of the church and kingdom of God? I love that. Um, I love your, this comes back to an application. So you, on page 201, you just taught that, but I love the way you say, okay, this is the story. What's the application for us today? And I like to look at those, what do I need to do inward? It's easy to kind of maybe see moats in other people's eyes and what they need to do to create more inclusion, but it takes a little more humility to sort of say, what it, Lord, is it I? Yeah. And what is, is there something here that I need to work on? And is this story exist um, to help me um, better more and bear in comfort? Um, I'm just deeply moved by this painting, as you described it. It brought me to tears when I look at your decision to have his eyes wide open, talking to us and introducing himself and symbolic of all of Black Latter-day Saints. I look at all Black Latter-day Saints. Um, you d you're right, you don't see who ordains him. And you see him wide open with the hands on his head. And to me, that just draws me into people that are different than me and what's my responsibility and what is behind those eyes and what do I need to learn about that person? Yeah. So that is, that's really personally deeply moving to me. On, on that note, Richard, thank you for saying that. Um, you know, on that note, I, I recognize I'm, I'm, I, I am self-aware that I am a white Latter-day Saint painting a black man. I am conscious of that. Um, and um, it might be easy for me to talk about this history. Um, it's not easy for me, but I, I, I also, back to, I, I'm so grateful you asked the question, Lord, is it I? Um, because we all have to ask ourselves, what is it that we can do within our realm to, to help? And um, so one of the things that I talk about in the epilogue of the book is that the art in our church whether we, we might be a little blind to it, but the art in our church is relatively new. It's not until the 1950s that we begin to have kind of an institutional body of art. Our church was very slow on the uptake to use visual imagery uh, for pedagogical and instructional and devotional reasons. And it's not until the 1950s with Freeberg and Harry Anderson and Tom Lovell um, and, and that great group of, of artists, Minerva Teichert in the 30s and 40s, that we start to develop, and Minerva Teichert wasn't even embraced by the wider church until the 90s, really, 1990s. Um, what I'm trying to say is it's within our lifetime that we have started to develop a visual canon. And the canon is still really small. Um, we need more art from more people in more styles, in more of more diverse subjects, of, of more diverse stories. And 
we have barely scratched the surface of what our church can do artistically. And so I wanted to start to say, well, what can I do? Well, there simply are not enough paintings of people of color. Um, and I wanted to add a few. Uh, I, I had a, have a good friend who, um, who wrote me and said, you know, I, I do some interfaith work um, in a predominantly black area. I invited some uh, black leaders of other churches into our church. And this person said, I was just immediately embarrassed because every single image that was up in our chapel, everyone were people with, that were more Eurocentric and with, with, with light skin. And uh, the fact is they're just, and, and I know the church is conscious that when I say the church, I mean, different entities of the church that are procuring art and trying to use art. They're, they're doing their best, but there also needs to be a corpus, a body of art that they can pull from for that. And that's a call and a challenge to all of us who paint and who produce art to provide the imagery that the institutional church can draw from. And so there's a lot of work to be done in diversity of subject, in diversity of style, and diversity of, of ethnic diversity, so that all people internationally of all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, when they walk into our church buildings, they see themselves represented in the artwork also. That sends a huge, me- huge message to people of that there are people in the imagery that I see myself in and that I feel like I can belong uh, in this setting. So that's a call and a challenge to all of us as artists. That's a great segment. And I hope artists that are listening that wondering if there's more work needed, I think from Brother Sweat, you just got a green light. And I, so that is great. Do you have any thoughts on any of this, Sheila? No, I just have a question. Um, what are you doing with all of your paintings? Building a I wing mean, on your home? or <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just curious because... No. Are you my, my, my wife is tired of my paintings, Sheila. She does not want to see any more of my paintings hung up. Um, I, I, I have uh, a number of the originals. I've sold a number of the originals. Um, I do sell them to those who are to buyers and those who are interested. I have some prints available uh, of them as well. So I do have a few of them up in my home, um, but I'm also, I've also sold a number of them as well. Uh, my wife and my mother are the two um, people in my lives that have brought church art into our home. I grew up with a mother who got an art history major. I can't remember the LDS artist. She did her focus around, I don't know if you Lee, remember. Lee Green Richards. Lee Green Richards. And my wife has just brought artwork. She taught Release Society lesson yesterday about the importance of artwork and pictures of Christ in her home. And I, I recognize. That all resonates with me, that last segment you did about the importance of artwork. And I look at the gospel topic essays that I became aware of, and I look at your work to sort of bring visual imagery and stories and principles around those to help us understand those in, 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 in a wonderful, faithful way. So that's very helpful for me. We're kind of at the end of your time and our time. Is there things, other things you'd like to, I'd love to have you just talk to people that are struggling with the history of the church. I know some of your students reach out to you and know you're a safe person to, and they can ask you, I would guess your students know they can ask you any question. And I would guess you've heard every question 
I, and I think I've heard uh, <laughs> almost all of them. I'm and sure I, there's ones I haven't, but and, most of them I've heard only a few thousand times. And there's nothing about our history that would surprise you and you haven't navigated in your personal life. And like you, I, I don't know as much as you do about our history, but there's nothing in our history, listeners, that surprises me anymore. And, it, and I know all of that stuff and have a deep testimony of the doctrine that came out of the Restoration and the and the mantle of the prophet Joseph Smith and feel much the way Brother Sweat does about our church and its, and its blessings in our lives. But talk to those students that are reaching out with questions and just what you'd like to say to them. Yeah, that's, that, is a, that is a great last kind of segment and question to end on. I am big on the idea, and it's, because, it's gained traction. I'm so grateful for President Nelson. Uh, Elder Bednar, um, uh, President Uchtdorf, when he was in the First Presidency, now Elder Uchtdorf, as they've all talked about the ongoing restoration, as they've talked about or used phrases like the developing restoration or that the restoration continues. Uh, President Uchtdorf's talk, are you sleeping through the restoration? That if we have this idea that the restoration is something that uh, only took place in the 1800s, um, uh, and, and is finished, we have a, a misconception, in my opinion, that the restoration of all things is when God's will is perfectly done on this earth as it is in heaven, when all the effects of the fall of Adam and Eve are conquered and made right. In that sense, the restoration has a lot of work to go. Um, and it will not be complete until the second coming of the Savior, when the knowledge of the Lord floods the earth, when Satan is bound, and when this earth is redeemed and made a place of paradise. And so until then, we are working through mortality, limits, limits of knowledge, limits of understanding, human weakness in ourselves and in others. And, and that doesn't excuse it. I'm not excusing it. Um, we need to work through it, but I also don't think we should uh, create an unfair and an unrealistic ideal that, uh, that the restoration is perfect and complete. And so therefore, when we see things that are imperfect and incomplete, that therefore the restoration isn't real or not uh, God's work. Uh, that, that would be kind of one of my, my number one ideas to grasp onto. Uh, as a whole, um, which is just, I don't know, it's empowering to me. I, I love it. I think that the Lord will, he is guiding this work. He is working with lots of people too, by the way. I'd also, I also don't want to be myopic and have a kind of Mormon exclusivism. I believe the Lord is working through many people, many organizations, many faiths, many institutions, all, many people all over the world. Because if we see the restoration as God bringing his will onto this earth to be done perfectly as it is in heaven, then God works through a lot of people to bring that to pass through musicians and artists, speakers and authors, political activists, uh, everything. Um, uh, and so Please understand that. But I also do want to, maybe as, as a concluding thought, if I can try to say this right, if I can give an analogy to, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a father, I'm blessed to have seven children. 
and they range currently in ages from 22 and married down to four years old. Uh, I'm, I'm covering the gamut right now. You are. I, I literally have married children. I have a child on a mission and children in college, high school, junior high, grade school, preschool. Um, here's why I share this with you is sometimes, um, you know, we, we can look at, well, there's a difference between the church making mistakes and the church not being true or leading people astray. Um, I think there's a difference there, leading astray and making mistakes. And if we look at our own families, if I grabbed you my seven children and said, does Anthony and Cindy sweat as your parents, have they made mistakes? And you would need a second podcast that's an hour long for my children to air <laughs> all their grievances against us as parents that we've, where we've made mistakes. And I'm the first to admit in hindsight, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done that or we should have done that differently as we've learned and grown. However, if, if you grab my seven children and said, are your parents leading you astray? And that's a different question altogether. And um, I have no doubt that my seven children would say, no, my parents lead us in the right direction. It's kind of like what Sheila was saying. If something is true, it leads us to Christ, to make and keep covenants with him and to the exalting of the human family. And, and I don't think my children would say we're leading them astray, even though we make mistakes. And I hope that people grasp that. Uh, that difference uh, for any listener who's struggling with history or doctrine or teachings. And if I could just add one more caution, a, a dose of humility for us all. I one time was giving a, a similar talk concept like this and a, a, an emeritus member of the 70 happened to be in the audience. He was sitting on the front row and uh, I don't have permission to share the story from him. So I'll, I'll have him remain anonymous. Um, Afterwards, he came up to me and he said, I appreciate what you said about prophets, the restoration, et cetera, and mistakes. And he asked a pointed question to me. He said, who determines what is and isn't a mistake in the church and the kingdom? And, uh, and I said, you know, that's a great question. Uh, he said, is it, is it the people that determine it or is it God? And that's what he left me with. And just uh, one thing I would share is my own daughter, uh, who's 22 now, we had certain rules and policies we've implemented regarding cell phones and social media, which every parent has to navigate today. And some our teenage girls, when they were girls, I mean, literally one of them said, you are ruining our lives. That's an exact quote. Uh, another exact quote was, you are the worst parents ever. You do not understand. We're laughing. Another, another exact quote. Maybe you guys can relate a little. We can. Um, you're too old. You don't get it. Um, things like this. And you probably already see where the analogy is going. Well, as my oldest daughter became an adult and got married, we were talking with one of our younger kids one time about some of these same things that we're implementing. And, and our oldest daughter said, listen to mom and dad. They, they know what they're, this is the exact girl who six years ago was saying we were ruining her life, you know. And then she apologized to us. She said, I, I thought that you and mom were wrong all along with this. And she said, it's taken until now for me to understand it and see that, that uh, what you were doing was right for me at the time. 
So that might be the other thing is let's just all have a little humility about uh, what we designate as mistakes and errors and problems of the past of judging people in the past uh, and let the Lord work with them individually in their context with all factors involved uh, with all knowledge and insight, the same way we hope he works with us individually. So that, that would be just one more message I'd share. That's a great concluding message. I'm so thoughtful. You have anything questions, Sheila? No, just thank you so much. Well, on behalf of the Osler family, Sheila, my co-host, I have a co-host today on the podcast with Sheila. That's been great. Um, she's my co-partner for life and I'm a wonderful mother to our children. And this topic is really important to both of us, but she's the one that's really brought artwork into our home and has blessed our life. And and he's using that example for, with many people. And so we appreciate you, Brother Sweat, for the work you're doing in so many circles and taking your time to be on the podcast. I encourage all of our listeners to please um, buy Brother Sweat's book. Um, if you feel impressed, I don't want to like make that a rule of listening to the podcast. Neither of us do, but it's available at Desert Book. I assume it's on Amazon, Anthony? It, it is. It is. Yeah. And I encourage you to go check out him. his Instagram page. For those of you on Instagram, is just awesome. I like that you're involved in social media. I think that really reaches a lot of the younger people. So you're on Instagram at Brother Anthony Sweat or go to his website at anthonysweat.com. So on behalf of all of us, this is, and do you have any thoughts you want to share, Sheila? This is all of us signing us off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Mm-hmm.